0: What does your restaurant's holiday situation look like? Are you packed with reservations and events from here through the end of the year? This is your opportunity to capitalize on that massive demand, and Yelp for Restaurants is here to help. Leverage their state-of-the-art reservation and waitlist systems, paired with the largest consumer network in the country to drive more awareness and get more butts in seats this holiday season. To learn more about Yelp Guest Manager and how we work with restaurant owners to reach their full potential, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Now here we go. You gotta fail, man. You gotta get
1: pretty low to be able to then find out like really what do you wanna do? And it's okay. You know, unless it costs you, you know, somebody's life or millions of bucks, it's okay to fail. I would just say fail quickly, (laughs) fail often, but fail quickly and move on.
0: Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. Are you on track to hit your profitability goals for this year? If you're struggling to hit your numbers, I might be able to help. Here's how I do it. Every year, I offer five complimentary growth sessions to restaurant owners looking to scale. In this call, we'll examine your current situation to see what is and isn't working. We'll identify your growth possibilities by the close of the year. We'll uncover the number one thing holding you and your business back. And we'll develop a growth plan that will get your business results. Go to planwithjosh.com to schedule one of the five complimentary growth sessions. They're going to go quickly, They always do. The beauty of coming up in a corporate environment is that you learn the blueprint for repeatable success. Today's guest, Eric Wyatt, has worked for some of the most prolific brands in our industry and has leveraged that collective wisdom and experience in his latest role as the CEO of Norm's Restaurant Group. In our conversation, he shares the proven principles he's used to climb the corporate ranks and lead some of the best brands in the world.
1: So I was a speech communications major. I went to a small state university, Stroudsburg in the Pocono mountains, of Pennsylvania, and, uh, I wanted to be a DJ. I wanted to be like Howard Stern, right? Mm -hmm. I could talk radio. And that's why I had this speech communications voice for broadcasting minor, et cetera. And I did an internship at an advertising agency, downtown Philly, and I worked on some radio ads, like as an intern. But I will tell you, it's a thread, it's a common thread, and you probably have heard it before, but it is a little bit of who you know and making those connections. And the guy, Pat Flanagan, was my boss at my internship. He turned me on to Ray Mervis, who was the sales manager at Donnelly Directory, and I got an interview. And I started selling bold listings and in-column ads over the phone, completely like, what? That's not radio, but it was advertising and it was kind of staying in that realm, right? So, Donnelly Directory was a sales agent for Bell Atlantic back when the Yellow Pages meant something. So, I did that for a year. I got promoted, went to outside sales, got a company car. I mean, I thought I was flying, but I didn't want to sell, you know? So, what else could I do? Well, and I mentioned to you as we were getting to know each other, my dad worked for an oil company, Mobile Oil. And when I graduated, I still had long hair. I was still like this 80s guy. And I went to interview with Mobile and I didn't get the job. So that's how I ended up going at at Donnelly Directory. And rejection is something that I think you just got to be able to handle, man. Like throughout my career, I've not been the first choice. And so I don't get this job at Mobile. I go to Donnelly. Unbeknownst to my dad, I said, I'm going to apply for a lower level position. I got gotten my hair cut by then and, and I got the job. And so that was kind of cool. I started actually as an analyst here in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and I got promoted within, again, 10, 12 months. And I was in a marketing rep program. And I tell you all this because, again, I started, I was working with franchisees, you know, 27 years old, 26 years old, and I'm giving business advice to multimillionaires how to run their mobile marts and service stations and pricing recommendations and elasticity and sort of like, wow, really? They're listening, you know? And I then got promoted to run company operations like uh, Palm Desert, Corona, California, And the brand came us. we were doing joint ventures. And so we were doing things with like Jiffy Lube or adding car washes. And one of the alternate profit centers we were trying was, hey, let's see if we can stuff a Taco Bell Express inside of a mobile mart. So I opened the first two Taco Bell Expresses in Cathedral, California, back in the late 80s. And they went very well. And what I was really fortunate about, although I didn't know it at the time, but the guys at Taco Bell kind of liked me and liked my business ethic and the work that I was doing. And so they came to me and said, Hey, would you be interested in coming to Taco Bell? And I was like, fast food. I mean, in college, I cleaned the restaurant in the mornings, got promoted to dishwasher and then to the pantry. That was my restaurant experience. Right. And I was like, I don't know that restaurants are even something I've ever thought about. And You know, in parallel path, got promoted, moved back east to Virginia, and was the pricing manager for mobile for half the country. And they had about 600 locations company owned. I did about half the country. And so they said, Hey, the guys in the Northeast are looking for a market manager. Would you be interested in that? And that's really where I went and talked to them. And it was really this kind of up level and business acumen they were looking for, not so much just the operations component. We can teach you how to twist burritos stuffed tacos and all that, but how do you bring the business acumen to the brand? And so that's what I did. I became a market manager, was a franchise and license director. And then I actually became a franchisee and a operating partner for, at the time, about the seventh largest franchise group in the country. That was game changing. I spent five years on the corporate side and five years as a franchisee and operating partner. And I wore every hat whether I'd be on a construction site or in a co-op meeting for everything. So I really cut my teeth. have a guy named Tom Cook, who's a big franchisee of Taco Bell still and Buffalo Wild Wings. And he really helped me develop into, I think, the leader that I was. But after 10 years, I said, that's enough fast food. What else can I do? My contract was up. And that's when I started talking to a recruiter about this company called Starbucks. And that's what led me into being a director of operations at Starbucks. I became a director of business operations, and I was a regional vice president, and then the vice president for global stores, op services. So everything from program management, implementation, testing and innovation, field communications, as well as all things drive-through. And I really had what's called the drive-through evolved Program that what you see today, but at the time, a twenty-two point five million dollar capital project for U.S. business to do all of the taco, or I'm sorry, the Starbucks drive-throughs evolved because initially he didn't like uh, drive-throughs. He didn't want anything to do. It was all about the third place and being in the cafe. So they just sort of slapped stuff on walls and put up menu boards. And it was, you know, two car stacks, not really building the right architectural type for for drive-thrus. And obviously that's just changed completely today. And probably 85, 90% of their business is drive-thrus. And then I made this, uh, what I say is the biggest mulligan in my career. I took a chance, was looking for more. I left a great gig. I was just having dinner with somebody from Starbucks the other night. And he said, you know, would you go back? And uh said, no, I wouldn't go back, but I certainly love what we did, you know, because we worked together there. He's gone on to do some other stuff, but it's just such a different company today. But if you asked me that five years ago, I probably would have said yes. Yeah. 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 The unionization there has really surprised me that that's occurred. And that's a big challenge. That's a big challenge for them. Yeah, So I wouldn't go today, but five years ago, I probably would have. So I go to L Brands. And to me, coming out of Starbucks and going into L Brands, which specifically they have multiple brands, uh, Bath and Body Works, Victoria's Secrets, La Pink. And I was on the Bath and Body Works business and it just wasn't for me. And I knew from the first day, like, oh, crap. And I failed. I wasn't good because I wasn't feeling good about the gig. I didn't like the culture. Coming out of Starbucks culture into uh, what have you done for me lately culture? And I failed. And it was probably the first time in my career that I failed. And I think that's a really important thing. I mean, if there's one of those kind of points, you got to fail, man. You got to get pretty low to be able to then find out, like, really, what do you want to do? And it's okay. You know, unless it costs you, you know, somebody's life or millions of bucks, it's okay to fail. I would just say fail quickly, <laughs> fail often, but fail quickly and move on. And so I spent two years there, got out of there, and then I became an operating partner for a franchisee here in Philadelphia for Panera, three years doing that. And then that gave me the opportunity where I was recruited to be in my first C suite job in a COO position. And so at Boston Market, I did that for a couple of years. My CEO moved over to another brand, and they asked me, the private equity guys, which was By the way, my first run at private equity, they asked me if I'd be the CEO and I never wanted to be the CEO. And that's another thing I would say, like, know what your goal is going to be, but be thinking about what's possible, because I never thought CEO would be possible for me and how short sighted was that? Because I got asked to be the CEO and I didn't know the answer, like if I really wanted to do that. Of course, I talked to my wife, who I've been married to for 33 years. She's like, you got that. No problem. And I was like, it was me that was like, I don't know if I can be a CEO. And I got some great advice from that outgoing CEO. She said, let others do what they do best. Surround yourself with the best people you can and let them run. And that's what I've been doing. So I did that. But five months later, the pandemic hit. Right. Because I thought I would do a what I could to reach out to other like-minded folks I'd work with in CEO or COO positions, and talk to them about how you're handling this, what do you think, What what's the playbook? There isn't one. But really, we had done a lot of crisis management throughout our career at that point in time already. And so while this was a new crisis, all those things that I had been working through other challenges throughout my career helped set up how to handle that and how to manage through that. And I talk about five competencies and I've been living by them for 25 years. One is leadership. You got to be the clear consensus leader, right? And so be out in front, make sure that people know you're leading the company through the success as well as through the crap. And that was the crappiest of days, you know, with the pandemic. Not just people getting sick, but right. what it was doing to the business, right? The other one is, effective two-way communication. And so over-communicate. In times of crisis, man, over-communicate. Like, let everybody know the good, the bad, the ugly, all that as best you possibly can. Within five months, we were out of money. We had to sell. That was, again, not one of my best sales. I've sold companies, but not when you're out of money before.
0: Not a lot of room to negotiate there.
1: (laughs) That's right. And they asked me to stay on after, and so I stayed on as the COO, which again, a little bit humbling. Yeah, you're taking a step back, you were running the helm, and now you have a high net worth guy come in to take over the company. And you had a three year plan of what you were going to be doing with the company and rip that up. And this person comes in to tell you, No, we're not doing that, or we're going to do this. and. I tried to make it work for about a year, but I knew that it wasn't a long-term sustainable thing. And that's what led me to CKE as the uh, SVP for Hardy's operations. But when I, they came knocking on the door for another CEO position, again, a recruiter that I've worked with over the years, I said, absolutely, I'm ready. I only got five months of a bite at the apple. And so that's what led me to Norm's. And I've been doing this now for about a year, almost a year.
0: I would assume that when you look at your career, it's just this constant collection of skills, right? The best leaders I know are sponges. And so I would assume that where you sit today at Norm's, it's an amalgamation of the best practices, of the best places you've worked, the best CEOs that you've worked for, the best leaders that you've worked with. And that's what you bring to the table in this new venture. Is that true? I'd say a good majority of that is true. I talk about because
1: I like to coach. I always think I'm coaching. Sometimes some people might say he's given direction or he's given feedback, but I truly look at it as the opportunity to coach. And one of the things I like to say is, you know, each position that I've moved along to, and I picked this up along the way, but yes. I've had such great leaders around me, and I could run down the list of what our current or former CEOs and COOs and CFOs and CMOs today that I was peers with along the way, whether at Mobile Oil, whether at Starbucks, whether at Taco Bell, etc. And they're everybody is flourishing in these roles, and so you'd be stupid not to pick up the good nuggets that you get from those folks, but also know you got to let go of some stuff, right? So I had to make sure that, and and that was hard. It's still hard because I know what I know and you got to let people go through some of that as well. You can provide the guidance, but they've got to let go of some things that they used to do because the job is different, the role has changed. And so giving that advice, because that's the advice I got. And so, yes, I picked up all these things along the way. But I also tell you another thing, Josh, I learned a lot what not to do from people and that's the thing you got to really kind of stay pay attention to because in the moment you might think well this is my boss or this is the leader of that function they must know they're act like they must know that's not always the case you can pick up some really bad stuff from people if you allow yourself to so you don't always have to pick you just got to be able to ask the questions and understand like how am I going to use that does that really make sense and then believe in yourself of what you know to stand up for. It. That's risk-taking, man. Like, oh, it is. Not everybody wants to do that.
0: Time and time again, I see restaurateurs opening new concepts and repeating old mistakes. The most powerful tool we have is the experience of experts we can trust. Mike Benson and the team from Southern California Restaurant Design Group have built literally hundreds of restaurants and have worked with the best in the biz. Exclusively for full-comp listeners, Mike and his team have crafted the essential checklist to opening a restaurant. This free guide explains in detail the steps we should take to complete our next project on time and on budget. Go to SoCalRestaurantDesign.com forward slash full comp to download this powerful free resource today. Here's a struggle that I think you probably have keen insight on that many independents struggle with. So I think that many independents are world-class at execution as it relates to culinary. Some are even great at management. Leadership is hard because most of us spend our times working in our business, not necessarily on it, right? And so as someone that has come up and spent much of your career working on these businesses, not necessarily in them, talk to me about leadership development. One of the biggest hurdles in my mind to an independent operator getting out of day to day operations isn't delegating. It's delegating effectively. Right. It's getting out of management and into leadership, setting vision so we can use. I think norms is a great microcosm, right, because it's a restaurant that's been around for a thousand years. It is a Southern California. Hey, 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 74, 74. (laughs) Almost next year, 75. (laughs) But it's, but I mean, there's a lot of culture there, right? There's a lot going on there that has been around for decades and decades and decades. And you're there with a new vision, right? And I'm sure that it's layered on top of the existing vision. There are adjustments, I'm sure, that you want to make to culture, to leadership. You want to leave your legacy on this brand. How do you go about cultivating the leaders of tomorrow today?
1: In a variety of ways. And I talked about those competencies, and I think I gave you a couple of the yep. five that I kind of work on. And this other one is planning, organization, and follow-up. And it's probably the most difficult one for people to master. I'm not like Sigma, you know, in terms of planning, organization, and follow-up. But I know enough to be dangerous, and I've gotten better. And, and so I, I lead with that, because you got to have a plan. And part of that plan and leading with the teams is go in and assess. That's the experience. I think it's very difficult without the experience. And I'm not saying how many years it has to be, but you can be wicked smart at the age of 18 or 25, but you have to have some experience and you got to bring that knowledge and experience to the table to be able to say, are these the folks that you want to surround yourself with? And in very short order, I'm talking somewhere after 90 days, you got to make a call. Like, am I going to be able to get these people there? Do I see them going one or two levels up? Do I see them being able to lead and follow the vision? Or do I need to make changes? And I think it's healthy. I think being a change junkie is a little bit healthy. Not being satisfied with the status quo, looking for areas of opportunity, but also respecting the legacy. You know, currently at Norm's, I got a couple of people that work with me, my SVP of HR and my culinary chef. They're 20 years with the brand. They got a lot of legacy. I got to respect that. Like they know the history, but don't get caught up in it, man. Don't get caught up in it. Like, I appreciate that didn't work or we tried that or that was really good 10 years ago. It ain't working today. Or let's try it again, but maybe do this to it. So I think that's part of bringing people along. And I do a touch base with every one of my direct reports on the leadership team once a week, one hour. Schedule 45 minutes. It usually goes over. I don't like to schedule for an hour. I always do a 45 minute thing. And that's just to keep it under an hour. (laughs) But in that, I start with the conversation. How are you doing? What are you working on? How can I help you? And I think that's super important because as you build the relationship, the transparency has to be there. If you can't be transparent, then you probably can't work for me or work with me. You just can't. Because I need to know the things that just are not working. It's not necessarily about the person or the leader. It might be about their team or it might be about the initiative. So that's that piece that I've always kept with me in that people development because I use both third party coaches. I have executive coaches for two of the folks on my leadership team right now. I provide coaching in uh, multiple ways, I always think, or feedback in multiple ways with my team. And then how do we cascade that further down into the organization from a leadership development standpoint? Now, here's the other thing. It's either them or it's the people on their team. So they've got to be able to make that call. And one of the things I've just seen over my years, and I fall into it periodically, but not lately, is make the call sooner than later. Because you're hanging on to people that aren't going to get you where you need to go. They still might be somebody that you want to keep in the organization, but maybe at a different level or in a different function. But make the move. Waiting is just killing you. And it's killing the brand. And it's killing whatever function they're in part of. So that's how the development piece comes. And we've made some changes at Norms in the last year. Actually, not just change for the sake of change, but lots of change. And I think you've got to be able to do that. And you know, Norms is probably a brand that got stuck in its ways many times over the zillion years they've been around, right? You know, in the seventy four years, they've gotten in ruts. So I am like wash, lather, rinse, repeat. For a guy with no hair, (laughs) I follow that model of like wash, lather, rinse, repeat over and over. So I do my weekly touch bases, talk about development. I had a two-hour leadership meeting once a week. And I just watched something from the former CEO of Ford back in the day. His his name's escaping me right now, but it's almost what I'm doing. But I picked up a little nugget from him. And that's what I think you got to be able to do is like learn from the other experience. And so his thing was like, we had a two hour leadership meeting every week and we had green, yellow, red. And we do that. We have our tracker, right? But his was brilliant. And I'm fine sharing because I picked it up and I think that's what you do. Green, hey, you not only got a problem, but you know, and everything's going fine. Yellow is you got a problem, but you got solutions that you're working on. Red are the ones you want to come forward because there's a problem and we don't have a solution. And so that's what we do every week is talking about the red, greens, and yellows. And that's part of the development piece too. But I am working on developing a successor, you know, at some point. I mean, I love this gig. This is a, this is Fine, the best.
0: Eric, I'll take the job. Stop begging. <laughs> We've I don't know just uh, met you're coming on a uh, little strong. <laughs> you
1: know you no, know, I'm developing an internal successor. I don't know you well enough <laughs> externally. But that's what I think, you know, you want to be able to do and I want to surround myself and continue to surround myself with people that I know that actually take this job and do better than I am. And that's really hard. People feel threatened by that. And I know that that's a common piece in leadership that like I don't want somebody too smart cuz then they're going to take my job. That same person I had dinner with this week hired somebody that was really good at where he's at. I'm I'm not going to tell you his name and all that stuff, but, I mean, he had a big job. And he told me, he said, this guy's taking my job and they gassed me. And so I said, well, I don't know, man. Like Maybe something else factored into it, but he's going to be just fine. He's going to get where he wants to go no matter what. He's a brilliant guy, right? So there was probably more to it because... I wouldn't be afraid of hiring somebody who could do the job or or developing somebody who could do the job better than me because I'm just fine. I love what I do, and I can go do it someplace else if I had to. But I'm going to finish the job
0: here. So you mentioned getting executive coaches for your teams. Coaching, generally, outside of, let's say, corporate America or the corporate side of the industry, it's not highly regarded. It's not something people talk about. I don't know if it's something that people really do. I got really? into, yo yeah. I mean, as far as the, I mean, who has the money, right? And you'd much rather spend it, you know, gussying up a walk-in cooler or adding more storage or fixing up your restaurant than investing it in yourself. I see in our industry, largely, that there is so much guilt around investing in oneself, especially as a founder, especially as a leader, which is a tragedy because. It is. It is. And so I'd love to know, Kind of, I would assume you have firsthand experience with executive coaching. How has it changed your life for the better? It's amazing. And I just got struck by that.
1: And it just reminded me how fortunate I was or I am that somebody invested in me at the time of my career. Because to hear you say, you know, people don't have the money to do that. Like, no, in fact, like find the money, find the money and do what you can to make sure because... I got this opportunity when I was at Starbucks. Now, at Taco Bell, they sent me to Center for Creative Leadership. That was valuable. I spent a week long. They did my IQ test and all sorts of other stuff that I never had exposure to. But more than anything, it got me in a room with 20 other people that were very similar in terms of their career pathing to be able to network with, share kind of stories about what's working, what's not, and those kinds of things, more than the coaching it wasn't individual truly like an executive coach starbucks set me up with a gentleman i don't know if i want to give his name or not because he's doing executive coaching still for people on my team and so they set me up but it was an internal person who was going to eventually leave starbucks but they asked him to get certified as an executive coach and then he became a coach for me and several others within the brand at first i was like Why do I need this? I don't need a coach and probably keeping the guard up, but it didn't take too long to really embrace it because I realized the value of it. And the key to it is about confidentiality. And so that investment in me, then when I got into the headquarters, they actually have an executive coach full time for VPs and above to utilize on a monthly basis. And so it's a voluntary and I took 100% advantage of that. Those two experiences also led me to being, at the time, they developed a class called Leadership in Action, where you did scenarios as well as then development skills, super instrumental. And not only did I was asked to be a part of it as a high potential, but then they asked me to coach it, which was pretty cool, right? And again, really starting to think about how do you practice the things. So you get this opportunity once a month to bring in other leaders, more junior, To coach them. It was amazing. And I realized the value of that. And I always have. And that's since then. And again, it's been tough. And a great coach puts it right between the eyes for you. I don't sugarcoat it. And if you're getting the sugarcoat, then you got the wrong coach. Yeah. You got the wrong coach. So I take sense So now that person. But this gentleman also has recommended other coaches to use because it just so I have a little bit of a posse of coaches that I can go to and use. And I believe in it. And contrary to popular belief, I mean, you can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, I'm sure, but it's actually really affordable. And I would say to anybody out there, ask your boss about the opportunity for an executive coach, because there's something different where you can really open up and really show the full wart, roots and all to a coach then maybe your boss or your leader, right? And then really hone in and align on what is it that you want to work on? What is it? Is there a competency? Is there a technique or is there a position you're striving for? Is there something that you want to tone down? Hey, you're too assertive, all of that, but you got to be feedback is a gift, man. And it keeps on giving and you got to be open to the feedback. And if you're not, probably going to limit your ability to get to the next level.
0: The best coach and the best therapist I ever had both said the same thing. They said, I function as a mirror. That is what I am here to do. I'm here to reflect back exactly where you are, where you would like to go and help you achieve clarity. I think the misnomer with coaching is, and I coach restaurateurs myself today. You would think that it's all new, right? Like I'm here to teach you, new techniques and new tactics and new this and new strategies. And I'm going to blow your mind with this and that. And like coaching is about true, not necessarily new. It's about revealing the truth in your life, achieving clarity around your vision. The people that you see that are truly successful in both corporate environments and independent restaurants, they have a clarity of vision that most aren't able to achieve. And that comes through, unpacking the truth, not the latest productivity hack. You know what my coach,
1: uh, Eric, who was the best coach you ever had before now? And I told him Matt to Thomas, I played football at, in Arcadia, uh, for the Arcadia Indians. He was the best coach I ever had. And, and he asked me why told me like it was, didn't sugarcoat it and got the best out of me. The very best out of me, even when I like didn't think I could play both ways on the field. And we talked about Coach DeTonson. And and actually, I tried finding Coach recently because he was a big influence on my early life as well as my father. And and I know that sounds cliche, but if you got a good father like my dad uh, was, he passed away about 10, 11 years ago now. But he was not just good. He was great. And in the early days, I blew it. I didn't take advantage of that relationship. But in the latter part, we made up for it, you know, in these last 10, 12, 15 years, um, like talk all the time. And he would always tell me, like, I'm just listening. Like, and he was an executive, right? He's like, it's all passed me by now. I'm just listening to what you have to say. And I dig it. And I'm sure you'll make the right decision. Super supportive. But, you know, I think your mom can be a huge influence as well. My mom never worked. But, man, she ran a business. I came from a family of six boys within seven years of each other. She ran a business. Yeah. You try having six boys all within seven (laughs) years, four of you playing on the same baseball team and going to the same schools together and all that stuff, man. It was my mom did a great job running her business.
0: Our industry is filled with rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the table to create a better future for all of us? Sometimes I think the
1: regulatory components that get involved in our business just need to stay away. Certainly food safety is the one that I live by and have for many, many years. But let the businesses run the way they need to run to be profitable. We just opened our 23rd location in Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard, Hollywood and Western, just on this past Monday. And it took us, and I'm not kidding when I have an S at the end of years to get it open, which is ridiculous. And the costs associated with running a restaurant is very challenging. So if we're going to support the independent operator or the franchisees and or the corporate folks, we've got to stop with all the regulatory issues that are brought forward that cost thousands of dollars and really make it preventing people from being successful in that. And so that's what needs to change in my mind. The other thing is just give people the chance wherever you can give them the chance. People for the most part want to do the right thing. There's some jerks out there and you've weed those out really quick, but give folks the chance. So if they can get an SBA to get a loan, or you can support or mentor them to be successful because they know and have the drive. And that is important. It's not the only thing, but it is important to have the drive because this business isn't for everybody. When I started at Taco Bell was running a restaurant and I said to myself, this is not, Being Howard Stern on the uh, radio, man, this is like four walls drive through at three o'clock in the morning, crazy restaurant operations. But that piece, as well as many others along the way, shape you into the leader that you are in the business and you don't forget it. And I know I've taken the things that I've done and I take them seriously. I take them to heart. I don't forget it. I'm very thankful for the life I get to lead today, but it didn't come easy.
0: Our industry suffers from razor-thin margins. And the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data-driven decisions. The numbers don't lie. And Yelp for restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And when restaurants pair that level of visibility with guest manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Eric Wyatt. For more information on norms, visit norms.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.